0: Good morrow to you, fine crafties, and welcome to another edition of the Arena Craft Podcast, a show focused exclusively on Magic the Gathering Arena. I am Arjuna, future shifted, but also shifted back in time to an old fancy English gentleman, and with me today is an esteemed guest, one of the finest streamers currently of the game a rivals member and frequent tournament top eighter it is chris botello welcome to the show chris how are you doing today man yeah
1: hopefully i've certainly been having fun as far as like learning a new skill goes
0: excellent yes so yes we had you on the show before in a panel discussion And uh, on that show, it occurred to me that we were getting about 1% of the potential brilliance that you had to offer, and so I wanted to invite you back on the show to just like go deep with you, man. So it's really a pleasure to have you here, and uh, for any of those crafties wondering where CGB is, he's in California. I was actually supposed to be in Dubai, but things got weird, and that ended up not happening. So here I am. And so Chris was gracefully willing to jump in on a moment's notice and record, which is fantastic. So it kind of all worked out. Chris, I'm gonna ask you a bunch of questions, and they're gonna go in some kind of an order. But the first thing is I'm really interested in hearing you talk about your history with the game. How did you start playing Magic? If it was before Arena, how did you come to Arena? I want to hear your origin story, man. The origin story of how I really got started
1: playing Magic is kind of an amusing one. I was fresh out of college and had just applied for a position at Wizards of the Coast. It was a customer support position, and one of the important skills they wanted you to have was to have knowledge of the game of Magic and be able to answer people's questions when they came up. So I went to this interview, got a couple of questions about exactly what protection did wrong and decided okay well i'm gonna need to brush up on this skill if i want to do well at this job i'm just gonna read the entire comprehensive rules of magic gathering while i'm on vacation which is like a 200 page document certainly a very fun use of time when you're in mexico i got back and had applied to be a rules advisor at the time and started going to some local pre-releases and drafts for It was uh, Fate Reforged at the time, and in her back that I didn't get the position. But looking at other jobs
0: after that, I just kept drafting because I turned out I actually liked it. Let me just interject here. Why Wizards of the Coast? Why did that stand out to you as being a a cool job that you would like to have? I had played Dungeons & Dragons with a
1: bunch of friends previously to this and was sort of more interested in that aspect of the company. I knew I wanted to be involved in some aspect in gaming, probably more in the business side of things. I had a friend at the time who worked up there and put in a reference for me with The Wizards of the Ghost. So the magic aspect of it kind of just had more to do with That was just an opening they had at the
0: time that they were trying to fill so you read the comprehensive rules of magic i'm sure that you remember all of them uh photo photographically and you got into drafting how did it progress from there because i know that you actually eventually went on to top eight at gp playing a fantastic deck that i hope you'll talk a little bit about how did you kind of connect the dots between starting to draft to actually getting to that top eight About
1: a year after I had started drafting, I had finally put together enough money to start building a Constructed deck, which is a fancy way of saying I got really lucky and opened a foil Tarmogoyf and traded it for most of a Constructed deck.
0: (laughs) Very nice.
1: (laughs) From there, about six months after that point of trading stuff and trying to build all of my own extremely janky control decks most of which focused on either Pyromancer's Goggles or looping Colagon's commands with buyback, to eventually, when Eldritch Moon came out, we got a card called Harmless Offering that was target- opponent gains control of target permanent you control. Previous to that card being released, I had been messing around with Demonic Pact lists, which is a four mana enchantment that has four modes. You get to choose one mode on each of your upkeep, either deal four damage to something and you gain four life, draw two cards, target opponent discards two cards, or you lose the game. The idea of Oh, I get to play this build around that has horrible downsides and I have to construct my entire deck around trying to balance myself on the razor's edge between being super ahead and instantly losing? That sounds like a delight. Well, we got the ability to turn the final mode into an upside if you use all the good parts and then pass it off to your opponent and... Make them lose the game. I took that deck to the first ever constructed Grand Prix that I went to. It was the first time I had ever played anything other than FNM or a local PTQ and somehow just absolutely lucked my way into the top eight of that event
0: <laughs> wow man baby's first gp just freaking nailing it i i didn't know that's really exciting i mean how
1: did that feel pretty good I- i've had my fair share of accomplishments in magic sense then
0: but i'm not sure i've ever managed to successfully chase that high ever again <laughs> the story of the top eight in and of itself is improbable factoring in the deck that you were playing as well you must have had some pretty salty and or disbelieving opponent
1: definitely uh, there were some feature matches along the way that had some very choice moments of bemused opponents not really even appearing upset just like what did did that happen Is this
0: real? Am I on a prank show? It it was a very enjoyable weekend. That gives me a little bit more of a window into the mad mind of Chris Patella. You've definitely upheld your reputation since then of playing kind of out of the box decks. Another one that comes to my mind is that Madu Yarian list that I think you got really well known for playing. You also took that deck quite far as well, didn't you? I played that in two different league
1: weekends against other Rivals League members at the time. And I think my record with it was 7 and 5 the first weekend, and something else the second was really well positioned against, at the time, um, Gruel, Embercleave aggro, and Rogues were the two most popular decks, and both of those decks oddly really really hated playing against Elspeth's Nightmare. And so you
0: just got to loop Elspeth's nightmares over and over and over. I'm starting to see a theme of yours. Pick a card, see what happens if you're able to play that card as many times as we want. As it turns out, they're good things.
1: I have a very soft spot for engines that produce value over and over and over. Especially if you have to do some really janky deck building, playing some very bad cards
0: to make it work. Kovac blue, of course, a fellow famous Yarian mage. You're definitely in good company on this show. Uh, so I fast forward a little bit there, but I would love to hear like, so how did you make your transition to playing Digital Magic and or Arena?
1: So before Arena
0: came out, I had at that point
1: started streaming Magic Online. This might be a weird reason to have started streaming compared to a lot of other players, but I felt like I wasn't practicing enough and that I wanted to try to force myself to practice better, and focus while practicing. I've always struggled when I'm just trying to play magic on my own with nobody else around, at a computer, grinding events, where I can't stop myself from like loading up a YouTube video and getting distracted and not really focusing on every aspect of why I'm doing things. I I would start getting into the point where I would autopilot a little bit. I knew that I wasn't actually improving at all or thinking about my own play in a way that was causing me to correct myself. I actually started streaming so that I would have to explain my thought process and to have people there willing to say, hey, you messed up. You did that play wrong. (laughs) Then Arena came out. It was revolutionary at the time because one of the big roadblocks to getting people to watch a stream of Magic Online was that there was no way to zoom in on the cards for a viewer. They couldn't see what anything did. You had to understand the game and have a photographic memory for every card in order to have any clue what was going on, which meant that it was really limited to only the most already engaged players as an audience. With Arena, we started having pretty quickly these programs that would let viewers on Twitch hover over the cards to read them and get to know what they're doing, and look at a deck list while the game is going. And suddenly it was very obvious this was the correct place to move your stream to because there were so many opportunities for newer players to actually get engaged. I made that transition pretty much instantly and never looked back. To such an extent that uh, I tried going back to MTGO for a cube draft a couple of months ago and got a very rude wake-up reminder of, oh yeah, MTGO is like slow. It's really slow. I don't think I can pay attention this long.
0: There are some things that it is very good for, such as playing Legacy or whatever. There's a reason most streamers now are using Arena. Yeah, I have
1: been fully converted to an impatient Zoomer these days.
0: I'm glad because it has brought you onto this show. So how did you actually make the break joining the Rivals League and getting involved in more competitive arena tournament play? That's an interesting story because I actually made it in through a system that I
1: have seen a lot of players talking about wanting the uh, Rivals League system to have been. And I think that a lot of the people talking about wanting the Rivals League system to be something that people could aspire to and get into didn't actually realize that system they were asking for existed already at one point, which was that back in 2019, Arena Qualifier Weekends rewarded points even if you didn't actually successfully qualify for a Mythic Championship. If you got five wins, you got a certain number of points, and these accumulated over the year on the leaderboard that they had going. And at the end of the year-long season, the top, I believe it was eight players on that leaderboard got invited to the Rivals League, and the eight players below them just got automatic invites to a Mythic Championship. And so I was playing pretty much exclusively with or Wilderness Reclamation at the time and was consistently qualifying for all of these because I was usually finishing pretty high on the ladder and had a string of, so I think there was like nine total in the season, I finished two wins away from qualifying for every set championship, which kept knocking points onto the leaderboard for me, but didn't actually qualify me for anything or feel like I had accomplished anything. And I actually didn't even know this leaderboard system existed until the very final month. And looked it up and realized, I'm in like ninth place. I just thought I was losing these events every month. I, I had spiked to nothing. I was just consistently performing pretty well, but it was a system that had silently been in place that was rewarding exactly that. The kind of thing that a lot of people have been asking for since then. As history goes, the very final m- month, I managed to actually go completely undefeated through the whole thing and qualified for a mythic championship and also happened to qualify for the Rivals League through that, which was very much the sort of zero to everything that had me in quite a bit of shock. Because prior to that in paper, there was this system where you could have bronze-level pros, silver-level pros, uh, gold and platinum that was based on your performance at the Pro Tour and Grand Prixs that I had been hunting for, like, Five years at that point, flying around to Grand Prix and trying to go to every PTQ I could to try to qualify for the Pro Tour. I had never even managed to get to bronze, which is the entry level. You get to get automatic qualification to one regional Pro Tour qualifier a year. Spent five years with nothing, instantly to beyond the equivalent of platinum with one weekend of, oh, I didn't think this was going to
0: happen. So you had your second surprise, here I am, kind of moment in your career. That's awesome, man. I feel like in a way that probably has kept you maybe a little humbler or maybe a little closer to the people. I certainly get that vibe from
1: you. I decided pretty shortly after that happened that I was worried If I think I'm good at magic, am I gonna stop improving? If I start to get cocky and think that I'm making the right play, but actually I'm making a mistake, I'm gonna be just the worst magic player ever. Okay, I need to make sure to not have that happen. I need to be convinced that I'm always making wrong plays so that I never get stuck in my ways. I've been trying to live that pretty close to the hilt ever since.
0: (laughs) I love that you brought that up, because that's actually one of the things I wanted to talk with you about, was I feel like you have a methodology by which you approach the game, which feels to me somewhat unique. You know, I wanted to just get into your head a little bit more, because it seems like you have... I don't know whether it's like a system that you apply or whether it's just a very, very detailed thought process that you're trying to talk through with your plays. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about just generally, how do you conceptualize getting better at magic? And then how have you actually applied that to try to keep improving? Generally speaking, when it comes to playing magic, I've
1: conceptualized the process of getting better as improving the process by which you make decisions more than focusing on making individual decisions more correctly. That sounds like a lot of words that don't mean anything, but in essence, it's I view coming to the correct decision as a mistake if I don't think of all the factors that go into that decision correctly. And I think this is a product mostly of the way that I tried to start getting better at magic by streaming. because. I started streaming with the goal that I wanted people to be able to understand what I was thinking, so I was going to talk all of my lines out loud and try to explain every reason why I thought decisions were correct. Eventually, I started realizing, all right, if I list five reasons a decision is correct, and three reasons that it might be incorrect, and I get the right decision and win the game, but after that, somebody points out that I missed one consideration that didn't even change the result, that it was still the right decision, but it was like maybe 68% the right decision instead of 70% the right decision, I viewed that as still being, oh, I made a mistake. My process was wrong, regardless of what the conclusion was. I think that viewing Magic that way helps make it easier to be humble and to always view a game as something that you made mistakes during. You can take 100% of the correct actions, but still have played a game imperfectly if you Considered things slightly wrong and got some percentage you were trying to calculate in your brain a little off. And maybe it didn't matter in that game, but habitually, if you can improve that, it's going to matter eventually, because magic's a game of percentages. And if you can change your win percentage in a matchup from 57% to 58%, that makes a lot of differences. That means over the course of a month, you're going to win two or three more games from that one improvement in your
0: play. And the thing is, if that percentage point matters, especially in a really key game, if that matters in a top eight game or if that matters in a final game, that can happen. When I'm talking with... Pro players and just people who've played more competitively. I love hearing those stories of how like I was in this game that I was like 95% to lose. I found all of my outs and I played to all of my outs and I got there. Those are like the juiciest stories in Magic. Those are the games where people hang up their hat after the game and they pat themselves on the back. You know what? You did all right today, kid. I have a lot of very fond
1: memories. Some of my favorite games ever on stream are when for... Some reason or another, chat's convinced me to play a deck that isn't a control deck for the first time. And I will be playing against a control deck that is 100 cards ahead, has total board state control, I have nothing, no lands, top decking. I'll get asked why I'm not conceding. And I'll just have to respond, well, I've been on the other side of this table before. I know that my opponent can just cast memory and draw seven lands. I've done it. We're like two percent to win here. Why would I not play out when I'm still 2% to win? And you know, 90% of the times you lose that, but 2% of the times you get the most
0: amazing comeback feelings ever. (laughs) It makes it feel worth it every time. Something I try to remember as well when I'm thinking about conceding, think about how many times you're playing a game really in the tank, and you're like, "Mm, not so sure about this game, ah, well if my opponent does this or that, it could really swing, and then they just concede, and you have that moment of, wait, where are you going? Like, you were totally in this game. I don't want to be that guy who thinks he just has no out, I'm just seeing the glass half-empty, or maybe my opponent's worried about a card that's not even in my deck, but they don't know that. There are so many different factors that could go into why I could still be in this game even if I don't think that I am. I think you start
1: to notice that a lot more when you play decks that are reactive and force you to consider, what could my opponent have here? how do I beat this thing that's really hard for me to beat? You start considering all of these possibilities of what they might have and how you play around it, and you go, okay, well, I feel really behind here, but if I top deck the perfect next couple of things, I can maybe stabilize, and my opponent conceded, what? You just are thinking so much about how you have to have such a perfect lineup of draws that it's really surprising that your opponent maybe didn't realize they were actually in a much better position, I think it's kind of everybody's innate nature to consider my opponent has the worst possible cards in hand for me. So I can't beat that. Instead of thinking, what if my opponent's hand is actually three lands and they're desperately trying to figure out how to
0: stabilize? Or it could even be like three Jouari disruptions. The worst card in that moment or the worst card in that matchup. I think if laddering is your goal, there is a certain calculus to just, is it worth my time to keep playing out this? This match. So I think it can be correct to examine your percentages and look at it that way. What do you think about that?
1: Everybody playing on the ladder has different personal goals that they want to optimize for. And I totally understand people who want to concede in a losing position and just get in more games and try to make it to Mythic faster, stuff like that. Personally, my mentality is that I really enjoy being behind and trying to struggle to win games where I am very unfavored. I mostly have gotten in the habit of not conceding in those spots more due to just very much enjoying them than any kind of optimization of time spent not everybody wants to average 30 minute matches with blue white control decks. And I I get that.
0: I was reading one of Reed Duke's books. I think it was maybe one of the level one books that he wrote. He said something that, really stuck with me which was there are three kinds of games in magic the games where you are just kind of obviously gonna win and there's really nothing your opponent can do about it and then he was saying there are games when it's the opposite your opponent just has a much better draw than you and you're almost certainly not gonna win and then he said the third kind of game is the kind of game that he plays magic for which is when it's difficult and you don't really know what's gonna happen and then you actually have to leverage skill and try to outplay your opponent to win. So it sounds like you really enjoy being in that zone of just being like, Damn it, I can still win this game. Let's try it out.
1: Okay, I think it's possible for me to win this game. Maybe. I just need to draw perfectly and my opponent needs to draw bad. There's like one out I can figure out here. Those are the kind of games that I just absolutely adore even if I lose most
0: of them. You just need to win 1 out of 10 of those games to feel great about it. I think it might help people watching this show to consider, before I concede a game, let me at least come up with a narrative for why I'm conceding. Maybe instead of just saying, oh, you know, my control opponent has 5 cards in hand, my board's clear, I'm just, this game feels really over. You could just take it one step further and just say, okay, what would I have to see from my opponent to deduce that I it's time to concede? What could I top deck that would make me feel like I was back in it? So at least applying a thought process before you concede rather than just that gut feeling of oh I just kind of feel like I lost this game
1: my heuristic for when I do concede is I ask myself if I can choose every card I draw for the rest of the game just tutor it and every card the opponent draws for the rest of the game is it still impossible for me to win yes okay I think I can concede then
0: One of the things that I love is that you're just bringing up the mindset aspect. One of the things that I've noticed about successful players is that they don't give up mentally. A lot of us, especially people who've played Paper Magic, have had those times when you're playing a match against someone who just has like a really indomitable vibe. You're playing against them and they're just like stone cold and they're just always in it and they're just always playing to win. You have that feeling of like intimidation. This person is inexorable and they're just going to do whatever it takes to win. And I think that just having that mindset I think goes a long way.
1: In my case, that comes down to me having conditioned myself to love games where I'm losing because those are the most fun to play, in my opinion. If you can condition yourself to love games
0: where you're losing, you'll probably find that you lose fewer of them. It sounds kind of masochistic, but I love it because let's face it, in Magic, you're usually losing close to 50% of the time. Even if you're winning 60% of your games, you're still losing 40% of your games. Part of playing Magic is losing. If I'm winning 60% of my
1: games and losing 40% of my games, then I felt like I was losing 40% of the games, but I also probably felt like I was losing 20% of the games that I actually won anyway. So if I'm going to spend
0: 60% of the time feeling like I'm losing,
1: I might as well get conditioned to have fun with that.
0: We start with the mindset. I want to improve. I enjoy playing from behind. I'd also love to hear a little bit more about your turn-by-turn process. I know that you can't like go comprehensively into everything that you might think in a game, but what are some of the basics that you just consider all the time? Am I going to play a land? How am I going to play out this turn? Can you give us a sense of that? One thing I will start with
1: is that most of planning and thinking about magic involves thinking in advance, branching paths that each turn can take. Turns like one through four are the easiest, cleanest example of this. You have some idea of what you're capable of doing on turn two, and what you might draw on turn two. Really simple example. You're looking at your opening hand of seven cards, and maybe it includes a Juari Disruption, two of the new dual lands that come into play tapped on the first turn, and maybe Smoldering Egg. You immediately go, okay, well, on turn two... I probably want to either hold up Jawari Disruption or Smoldering Egg, and I've only got one untapped land and two tap lands, so I have to choose whether I'm going to play this white-red tap land or this white-blue tap land, and in advance do I want to hold up Jawari Disruption or Smoldering Egg, and that's like the base level of making a decision on turn one and thinking about how that's going to affect what you do on turn two. By turn three, I'm drawing a couple of cards. What happens if I top deck a divide by zero? What happens if I want to play expressive iteration? What happens if I want to curve the egg on two into play a land on three and hold up draw a disruption? Being able to sit there on turn one, making the decision as simple as which of my three lands do I play on turn one? Everything about the mentality and process of magic that gets expanded to every stage of the game after that point. And then you have to start considering what your opponent might do. I personally feel like this the process of being able to chart the moves and the average tempo of a game out in advance like that, and what sort of branching paths there are going to be, depending on what your opponent does or what you draw, is a skill that is a product of becoming familiar with decks, yours and what your opponent plays, And what I tend to do is ask myself a lot of what-if questions about my plays. If I do this, what if I draw this other thing? Which of these two lines is likely to be better? There's a mental technique, I guess, that I tend to apply a lot, which is asking myself, what would I do here if I could choose what I was going to draw next? And what would I do here if my opponent could choose what I was going to draw next? What if the best-case scenario and what if the worst-case scenario? I find it's very illustrative of teaching you how to play around worst case scenarios and best case scenarios to be thinking about that every time you make a decision. It's kind of a quick jump start into the process of rapidly learning how to play around potential cards before you draw them. Once you get to a certain point in magic, that's really what the game is actually about. It's not often about how do I play the cards in my hand as best as possible, it's how do I play the largest number of possible top decks as well as possible. If you're conditioning your mindset to be thinking about those things more often, if you get yourself out of the space of being trapped thinking about just the stuff you're looking at at the moment, that's what starts getting you better the quickest.
0: The player that I can think of who talks about this the most, or at least just from the people that I watch, is LSV. I'll be watching him play, and like 90% of his decision-making is around. So if I draw this card, then I can do this. But if this, you know, he is someone I can think of who's always in that mode of playing to the top of his deck. There's many reasons why he's good, but I think that that's really a prime example. It's cool to see that a lot of his mental space is devoted towards that topic as well.
1: There is a common topic in Magic about luck. How some players seem to be luckier than others. And I don't know how many people have that conversation sort of tongue-in-cheek, but for everyone who isn't yet aware of this, allow me to illuminate you. Luck isn't real, but you can think of luck as if somebody draws the right card 70% of the time instead of 50% of the time. It's not that they're drawing the right card more often. It's that they are thinking about what they might draw, and they are playing in a way that makes more of the cards in their deck into good draws. Or, if there's only one good draw in their deck, identifying that they have to draw that card or they're going to lose, so they play in a way that maximizes their position if they do successfully draw that card. It's not just playing and hoping you draw something good, it's setting
0: up a larger percentage of your deck to be good draws. And then you'll draw good cards more often. When you're watching a good player, especially a player who's better than you, play Magic, it often feels like, oh, they had the thing at the right time, or they always top-decked properly, or they always this, or they always that. But what you're not seeing is hundred little course corrections that that person's making, so that when they do draw that card, it looks magical, or it fits into this plan. And I think it's like you don't see the plan until it's enacted. And then it looks amazing, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, you're kind of over here just fumbling with your magic cards, hoping something comes together. I've been playing a lot of Jeskai Hanada lately, and there are
1: certainly a lot of times where I find myself saved by, oh, I top-decked Magma is Cool, I win. But just staring at that little clip ignores the moments where... Two or three turns previously, you have to make a decision of do I sacrifice my Hinata here or do something else and just put myself on the mercy of my top decks? Well, maybe it made more sense at the time to sacrifice the Hinata because you were taking a lot less damage and trading off for a better creature and just being in a better position. But if you identify at that moment, well, I, I don't actually have a way to win the game regardless of what I top deck. But if I make this seemingly worse play and keep the Hinata alive, then I can maybe win if I draw Magma Opus into something else. It's all about identifying multiple (laughs) turns in advance. Okay, I have to do something awkward and bad now because otherwise I'm a dead man walking for the next two turns and there are no outs.
0: Setting yourself up for that is exactly what luck is. Just to add to that, I was thinking about the example that you provided of having the egg in your hand and also having a zhwari disruption i really like that example because i also think that it often ends up being very matchup dependent i would imagine for example play you play a land, turn one, and then you say go, and your opponent plays like a storm-carved coast tapped. I feel like you'd probably be more likely to slam your egg there than leave up Joari disruption, because you're playing against a deck that maybe their only two drop would also be another egg. Whereas if they play like planes one drop, go, maybe you'd be a lot more likely to leave up your Joari disruption, because if they resolve Thalia the next turn, Like, it's really going to make all of your other plays harder. I think that examples like that, they can get a little bit more illustrative of why those decisions matter so much.
1: I bring up the example of the land drops on turn one because I don't know whether famous or infamous would be the right word here for taking about two minutes to make my turn one land play sometimes just trying to chart out the first four turns in advance of what order and if I top deck one of my creature lands I want to play it on turn two so it's not a tap land later does that affect which land is right here? I really do recommend to everyone listening try to see how long you can spend before you make your first land drop and how many different things you can think of that will possibly affect which land is correct to play. The longer you can spend doing that while still thinking of actual considerations, that's going to be an exercise that will open your mind to the world of, actually, I can think of a lot of things in advance of them happening and start to have them in my mind so i can play around them
0: when you start getting that muscle going on a two color deck it can really help you come playing a three color deck we're moving towards a format new capanna looks like we might actually get like four color decks it looks like we're moving towards a format with really diverse mana it matters a lot more like the more colors you add to your deck if you start playing limited trying to splash doing all this kind of stuff It actually starts really mattering. If you can get the muscle primed now, it'll help you later as well. And much like actual exercise, it's
1: something that, as you get into the habit of doing it, it becomes easier. I remember when we first had the new Pathway Lands, I was playing a three-color teamer deck at the time, and it did not take very long at all for me to go from, oh, hey, cool, these Pathways make my mana perfect, to, oh, gosh, these Pathways make everything so hard... Just feeling so intimidated of okay, wait. If I love struck beast on turn one, then I don't actually have access to double blue to cast as brazen borrower on turn four that I need to do with my innkeeper so that I can draw a card. Oh gosh, what am I supposed to sequence this as? Got to the point where I was basically blue screening and freaking out at the beginning of the season, and by the end I went, well, no, actually I've gone through like every possible iteration of cards that I could draw in different sequences, and most of the process of getting better at Magic is just. Thinking things out in advance enough that you get to do more of the game by autopilot and focus more of your thought process on the weird stuff that you're seeing for the first time. All of that is just basically muscle memory and exercising specific thought processes enough that you become better at them and used to them. The brain
0: is a muscle. I really love this. And to add to this, my Arjuna's hot tip is another exercise I think you can go through. It ties into this, what you're talking about, visualizing the first four or so turns of the game. I really like looking at my curve and looking at my deck, trying to get a more big brain about what my normal curves are gonna look like and what are my best plays to make in different situations. There's a reason why a lot of people play like four shambling guests, four eye twitches, and for deadly disputes is because that makes your turn one, turn two curve decisions a lot simpler and a lot more effective in so many decks. That's a reason why like people have just defaulted there are a lot of black, sacky based decks where like those are just the first 12 cards that you put in your deck. It's kind of a tried and tested little curve. You can start thinking, okay, what if I'm playing against mono-white? Do I prioritize negwanning my opponent's creature or do I prioritize making a treasure when I sack my shambling gas? You haven't even played a game of magic yet. You're just looking at your curve. And you're just starting to think about, okay, how can this play out? What tends to be better? Or what do I think might be better? And then you can try it out. Pay attention on turn three. Pay attention on turn four. Oh, do I feel behind? Or, oh, did I draw my lolf, Which would have been amazing to play on turn four, but I didn't make that treasure. That's an exercise that I like to do when I'm building decks. Often when you go through that exercise, you end up putting more cheap spells in your deck, which I think tends to be good. And I think that was actually a recommendation that you made, if I remember correctly was to play more cheap spells. I have
1: definitely been on a kick lately of, wow, yeah, it's great having like 22 drops in
0: your deck. You just always get to do stuff. It's surprisingly powerful. Just playing a spell every turn or doing something relevant every turn is uh, pretty amazing in a game of magic. You can lose a lot of games because you just go,
1: turn three,
0: not going to do anything. I love talking about this stuff with you, Chris, and we could easily spend all of the episode just talking about that. But I did want to pivot and do a little bit of hard current metagame talk. I know that you have an upcoming tournament that you're going to be playing in. So this championship that you're going to be playing in, it's going to be alchemy and historic, is that correct? Yes. Yes. What's on your mind as you prepare for for this tournament? Generally speaking,
1: in my experience, preparing for a tournament has two distinct phases. One being the phase where you're trying to figure out what you expect the metagame to be, what are going to be the popular decks, what you should you be trying to beat, what should you be cautious of and try to not have a bad matchup against. Also, at the same time, what are the possible linear busted decks that are good kind of regardless of metagame, that are just doing something on their own, strong, and that tends to kind of define the initial skeleton of what a metagame looks like. And then the second phase is, alright, I have some understanding of what I think the popular decks are going to be, what they are hypothetically good and bad against, and if other people come to this conclusion, what kind of decks I can expect to fall off as a result, and then trying to figure out how to attack that sort of metagame. Currently in Historic and Alchemy, we're still closer to the first stage. There's not a plethora of established data of this is what the format looks like, these are the top decks. Historic. I'm going to guess probably Golgari Food, Auras, and uh, Phoenix are going to remain tried and true, and there's not going to be a lot that really knocks them off that pedestal too hard. But then you get a lot of interesting things like new cards for Auras, Runes Decks, Hinata, Grease Fang, Perhelion Combo. They're all kind of trying to do sort of these powerful linear things that you have to consider... Can we get any of these decks strong enough that their powerful linear thing can potentially fight against the existing top decks? And if the answer to one of those is yes, how does that change what other decks are likely to be popular? If it turns out that the Grease Fang deck just completely destroys food, do we kind of expect food doesn't show up, maybe? Alchemy very much in a similar spot, except even more unknown with less established decks and more wild out there stuff.
0: I love that you actually brought up Grease Fang because this has been a question on my mind. Is Grease Fang, Parheelian combo actually a going concern in Historic? What, What do you think based on your testing?
1: The combo itself is very powerful, potentially even stronger than Phoenix's getting back a bunch of Phoenixes and putting them into play. What I have not yet seen is whether it's possible to make a Grease Fang deck with a backup plan. Because Phoenix has a backup plan. It can win through Rest in Peace. It can just play aggressive creatures, cheap disruption, and start hard casting Phoenixes, and kill a deck that kind of dirtles around and expects Graveyard Hate to win the game immediately. Grease Fang... combo decks like that, that can't really have their combo pieces do anything meaningfully individually when the combo doesn't get assembled, have to, in my experience, either be absurdly consistent, which isn't really the case for Grease Fang. It's strong, but not insanely consistent. Or have a Phoenix-like backup plan where they can just plan B is a good deck too. I have not yet found a Grease Fang deck with a good plan B, but I've certainly found enough very powerful and consistent plan A's that I imagine the deck is actually going to be a pretty real part of the ladder, if nothing
0: else. Right when the set released, I saw people playing it in Pioneer, for example, having results in Pioneer, and then of course, you know, the light bulb went off for of Historic. This definitely seemed powerful enough to yeah. at least, like, go deep in the tank about how could we make it work. I'm really curious. I would love to see at least one person sleeve that up for the championship and see what happens.
1: Decks like that are so hard to predict, because the difference between... Not being good enough and then tipping over the edge into insanely good is such a thin barrier that can feel like you're miles away from, and then you find one card and realize you're actually already on the other side. I remember struggling a lot trying to tune Five Color Niv-Mizzet, thinking, oh, this deck feels so weird and rough and the mana doesn't work one evening i think i just spent like six hours making a spreadsheet of okay well what is every possible curve out of the first turns two and turn three what spells do i want to cast what order does playing these triomes matter in and what turn two shock lands does that allow me to play and i think i shifted like five lands in the mana base realizing, actually, these triumphs are the most important because they let me do this turn two into this turn three. It changed the deck from something that felt like I was winning 40% of my games with to something I felt like I was winning 70% of my games with. Something that small, it's so difficult to realize how close or far away you are when it's the smallest changes that can suddenly have huge impacts.
0: Or sometimes it's even just the printing of one card. I remember when Wilderness Reclamation, obviously a deck that you have played so much of, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but it seemed to me like Shark Typhoon was just like, we're good to go, they printed this card, now this deck is just amazing.
1: I was on Team Wilderness
0: Reclamation for a pretty
1: long time before that, but Shark Typhoon was definitely what answered the deck's real problem. Teferi Time Raveler was super hard for the deck to beat. There were no removal spells that actually dealt with it easily. You could like stock a bunch of negates and mystical disputes, but all of the decks that played Time Raveler played like five mana creature threats which made all of those totally useless. It was real rough. Well, now I can play Shark Typhoon and I can actually just put a shark in play and kill the fairy.
0: I felt like that deck, every set, it got one or two cards. Okay, now we have Uro. Now is it good enough? Okay, now we have this, now we have that. For me, it was the sharks that turned it into a monster deck. But sometimes it doesn't even have to be a new card
1: getting printed. Sometimes it can just be a new card remembering it exists. Standard actually provides a fantastic example of that right now. To folks who have been watching recent tournament results, it may be clear that there's a weird new deck going around that plays like four Goldspan Dragons, and four Leers, and multiple shows of confidences, and galvanic iterations, and at the very top of it, an alchemist scambit, which is the three mana extra turn spell that makes you lose the game next turn unless you cleave it and pay it for seven. That card's existed for a long time, but it kind of just got forgotten because it wasn't All of Epiphany, so why would you play it? now? There's this new deck I just described running around. It combos off by playing a bunch of Galvanic iterations into Show of Confidence. Gets copied an absolutely ludicrous number of times. The Magecraft trigger works, copying for copies. And if you Galvanic a Galvanic, you get like six copy triggers or something nuts. And if you Show of Confidence a Goldspan Dragon, it gets a treasure for every single copy, which makes you go up to like 12 mana pretty fast. With a Leer in play, and then you get to cast the Show of Confidence, again, what this deck does is just get to the point where it puts, like, ten counters on a Goldspan Dragon, which, okay, well, then you untap and maybe you kill the Goldspan Dragon, and you're fine, except it just actually also runs this three-mana time lock that it just doesn't care whether it's going to lose the game because it just needs to attack you with a 10 power gold span dragon twice.
0: Even if you're not guaranteed to win the game next turn, you made so much treasure, you can just play the gambit for full retail if you want.
1: The interesting thing is this deck is new and popular now, but there are no new cards involved. It just got discovered that they could play Alchemist's Gambit as a one or a two of, and with enough leers and enough card draw, they just dig through their entire deck and find it when they're comboing off. At any point in the last six months, that could have been a deck that people played, especially after all the Auron's Biffney bans when Standard turned into, like, a white-black mid-range fest. That deck is, like, an automatic free win against any white-black deck out there, but nobody discovered it. There are just so many
0: cards out there waiting for combos to be seen that people haven't figured out yet. Such a sweet card too, show of confidence. I remember blasting people in Limited with that card. It was so good. I'm really glad that it's actually showing up in a competitive standard deck now. What are you thinking about bringing to this tournament then? I have
1: been pretty hard on the Hinata train. It's tough for me to escape my roots and my roots feel like Hinata is Wilderness Reclamation except also it's a 4-4 flyer that blocks.
0: I ask you this question and then I see Chris shift from good decision mode to like pet cod things I love to do mode. <laughs> and maybe they're not mutually exclusive in this case, but I love seeing that.
1: I probably have a lot more history bringing questionable decisions to big tournaments than actually good decisions. <laughs> Over the last year, I've taken four color Lucky Clover adventures, to splashing for like three sideboard Yasharns in your teamer deck. I've taken Mardu Yorian. I've taken White Black Demonic Pact to a historic tournament because you just could play four main deck Graftiggers Cages and sacrifice them to Doomfortold. So it was great against goblins. I have taken blue-black Leer Control, playing 21 mana spells. I am very comfortable making extremely questionable deck choices. It's a bit of a brand at this point.
0: You're pretty hard on Hinata. Now, is this for both formats? Certainly more confident in alchemy,
1: but I have actually been kind of impressed with it in Historic. There are a lot of decks running around right now that get really taxed by Hinata in kind of awkward ways you wouldn't necessarily expect at first. I definitely started with the idea that, alright, I want to play Hinata because it makes all my cards better. And the more and more I play with it, the more often I realize, oh, hey, it's really cool to make my opponent's Thought Seizes cost two. Oh, hey, it's really cool that all my opponent's removal spells cost four mana and are unplayable. It is a lot worse to play a Inscription of Abundance when instead of costing two mana,
0: it costs four mana because it targets two things. Never mind the kicker.
1: The kicker is going to chalk on another four mana in addition to the kicker cost. It is wild how much the more I play with Anata, the more I realize, oh, this is actually just super one-sided thalia and let me tell you speaking of thalia normally you would think okay my mono white opponent has a thalia and a Redane in play that's gonna make it really hard to cast this magma opus if you have one hinata in play you get to play like a four mana magma opus anyway thalia and Redane just not
0: good enough hinata are really good at at doing their taxes huh Uh, possibly the best tax doer we've ever seen hinata's there on january 1st with all the paperwork filled out I do love how Hinata highlights how much the word target shows up on magic cards. Even just simple things like cards that say target player draws two cards, and you're used to like, oh I always point that at myself, and then oh I can't afford it anymore. I love the fact that that comes up. Or even just things like making all of your opponent's counter spells cost one more mana. (laughs) Magic feels like a very different game when their negates cost 3 and yours cost 1. I was actually playing Brawl and I had a Hinata face-off. I had one down and my opponent had one down, and I had a turn when I was trying to get all this fancy stuff done. I just brain farted on the fact that my opponent's Hinata was basically cancelling mine out, and (laughs) I had a very frustrating turn. (laughs) I'll, I'll put it that
1: way. Not too long ago, I had a game that involved playing against gruel werewolves in alchemy. And my opponent, I forget the name of the card, but the two mana werewolf that starts stealing cards from your opponent's deck stole a Hinata from me and played a Hinata. I didn't really think about it for two turns before realizing, huh, my magma opus that I was planning to hard cast to kill the Hinata, it it costs 14 mana right now. That's a lot of tax.
0: So Hinata and Alchemy, it's easy for me to connect the dots in my head about how that deck comes together. L- let's just talk briefly about the matchups. What's really contending in Alchemy at the moment? I'm partially asking just of my own curiosity. I have not Alchemy much lately or followed it much. I've been back on the standard train. So the Alchemy metagame differs from standard.
1: One, it's much more aggressive. The biggest reason for that is that the Goldspan and Leer nerfs mean that most of the Big blue-red decks in Standard just don't transfer over to Alchemy at all. The current top two decks are probably rural Werewolves that's kind of unchanged, and the new top dog, Green-White or Naya Runes. Similar lists that exist in Standard, but because in Standard there's this threat of blue-red combo at the top end, it's a little tougher to go the distance with kind of an uninteractive green-white based beatdown strategy. As a result, both of those lists kind of go over the top of the white-black midrange strategies too. There's just too much trample and too much speed to them that standard equivalent decks can't really keep up with. So for the most part it, it's very much an aggressive format. There's not a ton of established top-tier control decks Stuff that used to play Leer kind of can't anymore because the nerf in Alchemy means that you can't play removal spells on their turn, which just isn't acceptable when all of these aggro decks are playing so many haste threats. Is Werewolves still a thing? The Gruul decks that exist are sort of Werewolves decks that uh, starts flipping it to night early on, and that requires weird sorcery speed answers that disincentivize you from playing instant speed removal on turn two because if you do then you don't have anything to do at sorcery speed on your turn three then your opponent plays a storm seeker that's just a five five because you let it flip to night just plays a ton of hasty threats but the norm has kind of moved away from werewolves tribal synergy and more to just day night tribal synergy alongside good creatures not as much of um Tovalar,
0: and more we're going to play good creatures at every point on the curve. That makes sense to me. Was the nerf to the Fearsome Whelp? Is that what it's called? I haven't seen it in a while.
1: It hasn't been on my radar as a card to remember the name of, although I'm terrible at remembering the name of cards in general. I, I was never of a proponent of the Dragon's Deck being particularly competitive even before the nerf it has a lot of inconsistencies that i could go into deeper analysis of that we don't really need to get into but there is a noticeable effect on the latter that people want to play cool fun decks and are okay playing a 49 percent cool fun deck and just like enjoy that which you know nothing wrong with that getting to play cool big dragons and going for something splashy is there's a reason we have the magic player psychographs and it Timmy is one of them, (laughs) very much enjoy playing big dragons. They kind of nerfed that deck, in my opinion, more because it was a menace on the ladder than because it was a menace for constructed play. I think that there's something psychological about players not enjoying feeling like they got high-rolled out of a game, that their opponent just had a whelp and played three dragons on turn five and that they didn't have anything they could do about it. Players dislike visceral-feeling randomness. They prefer their randomness to exist. And that's kind of the counterintuitive part, because a lot of players will tell you they hate RNG. They actually hate playing games with no RNG. And they love the fact that RNG exists in Magic when they don't know the RNG is there. They want it to be invisible, and Dragons was a deck that made it very, very visible that the RNG existed. And I think that's kind of more of why it got the nerf.
0: I always found ways around that deck, and sometimes I lost to it, but I, I too didn't feel like it was particularly oppressive. But you're right, the wealth into the Town Raiser was just such an annoying curve for so many decks to deal with. There's just something unsatisfying
1: that even if you win 70% of the time against a deck, if 30% of the time you sit there and go, I couldn't do anything about that... I had my one opportunity to draw Spike Field Hazard and I didn't, so I lose. Even if a deck isn't oppressive, it still can just be not fun.
0: So with this kind of more aggressive than standard meta game. In Alchemy then, are you feeling kind of the usual, is it control go over the top finish kind of plan? Is that feeling pretty well positioned at the moment?
1: Like I said, I've been so enamored with Hinata that it's hard for me to separate a deck being good from a deck just being a joy to play. And historically, I have made a habit of playing the deck that I enjoy the most because I will practice more with a deck that just makes me queue up one more game. I think that the difference of how practiced you are with a deck is a lot bigger than even playing a completely different deck if it has a slightly better suite of matchups. I I like to think of myself as not a good Magic player, but one of the better Magic players out there. And I still think that it takes me so long to learn a deck that it really does benefit you to just sit down and learn a deck and grind hours in it and spend time actually focusing on what the deck does and learning to anticipate what the next couple of turns look like more, way more than just switching decks constantly to try to pick up a better deck for a specific weekend.
0: I would agree with that as well. I think that it ties in with your advice earlier in the episode about visualizing your branching decision trees and stuff, because I think it becomes easier to do that when you know a deck really well. When you've played a hundred games with a deck and you've been like, oh, those curves generally don't work out. Or when I keep a hand that looks like this, I generally get run over. So you start building that muscle memory, and I think it does free you up to start having some of those higher level thoughts, which make you a better magic player. I really like that advice. I think the thing that I've heard from a lot of very good players, like competitive players, is that playing a variety of decks in a format can be good just to get a sense for how they feel, what the curves feel like etc and then specializing in the deck that you want to play and putting in a lot of time on that is also good you spend some percentage of your time playing deck styles that you're not used to so that it broadens your understanding and makes you better against those decks or whatever and then when you really go back to focusing on what you like to do you have that knowledge but then you can also go deep and really perfect the style that you're playing what are just like a couple of the decks that you think are really going to be at the top of the alchemy meta going in
1: Runes and Gruul Werewolves are definitely the two most likely ones, although I still need to kind of test out that matchup. I've got the impression that Runes might actually be so good in that head-to-head matchup that Werewolves ends up not being popular at all as a result. Is it the lifelink that makes the difference? It's that the Runes deck pops off and makes one big creature that can just kind of invalidate Gruul's ability to be aggressive. And because Gruul doesn't scale into the late game well, whereas the runes deck has a bunch of card advantage, if Gruul has to sit there and has to just not attack for a turn, because there's a 6-7 on the opponent's side of the board just sitting there, then Gruul is incapable of winning.
0: And I suppose at some point that removal just stops working.
1: All the removal is like dragon fire, sometimes fight spells. It's the classic green problem of not being able to beat a bigger creature than your board. Gruul did get around that more than a lot of other decks because Halana and Elena and Stormseeker combined to make some really massive creatures really fast, but the runes deck actually just outscales that with Shodan of the Skalds. We'll see. I've got suspicions. I still need to test that. Beyond that, Hinata seems to be the typical top end of control right now because Goldspan Dragon options aren't as viable and Leer options aren't quite as viable. Any hullbreaker showing up? I have not seen a lot of Holebreaker in, to be honest, any format. I think I might be like one of its biggest detractors. Amusingly, most formats right now are just piling a lot of removal that Holebreaker is not great against and we're not really playing the type of decks we used to where all of our removal was bounce spells or counter spells, and where Holebreaker Horror could just be like, okay, I'm going to play this at the end of your turn, you're going to bounce it, and then I'm going to play it again, and we're just going to get rid of all of your answers one turn by one turn. Now all the answers are kind of, okay, well, I'm going to spend two mana and kill your Holebreaker Horror. And you didn't get to nine mana to protect it because that's not a thing that happens anymore. There's Vanishing Verses running around, there's Fatefully Absence running around, combo decks that, at least in the case of Standard, are playing Gold Dragon and a bunch of other ways to win the game that are just really good at punishing you for tapping up.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that, Chris. I am also a detractor of the holebreaker I mean, I've lost to it plenty, but I just... I never lost sight of how clunky of a card it is. If your opponent just has endless rites of oblivion, vanishing verses, and all kinds of stuff, to me it just seems very unlikely that the Holebreaker is going to come through in the end. Well, Holebreaker's best
1: matchup, amusingly enough, was probably against Mono Green, and that just hasn't really been a deck anymore. And there's not a lot of other decks that are just about playing one big 4 4 every turn that get invalidated by a 7 8.
0: That's a good overview. I want to pivot just quickly to Historic to get a pulse of what's going on there. So you gave us a little rundown, right? You were talking about like food. Is it, did you say Aura's was still on the menu as a top tier deck? I'm getting kind of some
1: hollowed out eyes flashbacks here because not too long ago when I made a YouTube video uh, starting on stream putting together a list of, okay, well, what are all the popular decks in Historic, and what are the common cards that you see in them, let's figure out ten of them, and I'll make a YouTube video talking about all of these most popular decks to just give everybody who wants to play this weekend a quick introduction to the format. And for the next, like, three hours of the stream, people kept coming in and suggesting decks, and I just kept going, oh, yeah, that is a deck that actually sees play. And the end result was that I had a list of, like, 30 decks. I had to do a video on building a deck list for every single one and talking about the common strengths and weaknesses and what to expect your opponent to do if they start playing these cards. You know what? Actually, rather than trying to remember a billion of those off the top of my head, I'm actually just going to go cheat and copy my own homework from the past. So we have... Blue-White Control, which is separate from Blue-White Lotus Field Control, which gets an important new toy in this set. There's a card, a 6-mana board wipe called Farewell, that lets you exile creatures, artifacts, enchantments, and graveyards. You can pick any combination of those you want, which gives Blue-White Lotus Field a ton of game against Golgari Food that was a really tough matchup before. Actually exiling all the cats because you hit the creatures and the graveyard at the same time. Clearing out all the trail of crumbs that are Blue-White's biggest problem especially the Lotus Field version that didn't have access to Portable Hole because it plays the 2-mana creature that shuts off ETBs, which just means you can't put Portable Hole in your deck, and also gives it a viable Board Wipe that it can main deck against Phoenix, in addition to having Shark Typhoons that are just really powerful against Phoenix in general. Um, Jeskai Control still exists, having Lightning Helix and flame Blessed Bolt is a popular new removal spell because it's so good against Phoenix we have is it phoenix golgari food heliod lifegain company is still an entirely real thing Luris raktos alchemist which is a smaller ball version of young pyromancer decks that plays croxa and tries to just play a ton of hand hate spells to grind the opponent out. It's kind of like the most similar to modern Jund of the decks that exist.
0: Has that deck moved away from, what was that split card that bring a thing back from the graveyard and give it haste and stuff like that? Flame to
1: fame, I've seen some lists still playing it and some lists choosing not to. Although generally speaking, I think the Luris version of Rakdos Arcanist kind of became less popular because Sorin the Mirthless got printed it became a lot more common to just get rid of the Luris, play four mana Planeswalkers because now you had this new Sorin and the four mana Chandra that kind of just were more tempo efficient than trying to put Luris in your hand and playing this six mana creature essentially. There's Niv-Mizzet Reborn decks that got the new green-red Kavu not too long ago that just lets them play an aggro backup game plan because they have or two mana five fives. Yeah, god, that card is kind of stupid. <laughs> that got the new three mana Saga that Exiles all one drops and then exiles the graveyard. I thought
0: that might do some work in older formats for sure.
1: Really good against green black food, that was sort of a tougher matchup for that deck because you hit all the cauldron familiars and the witches' ovens and the food tokens and the gilded gooses and the squirrels.
0: And the everything. That could probably even be kind of a problem for auras. A lot of their cards cost one as well.
1: I believe that it eats a lot of the random auras and frees you up to use your removal spells on the creatures. Especially useful against the auras that want to play Kaia's Ghost Form as its main way of protecting their creatures. And then we have Jund Food gets to be historically pretty good against auras because you can just ping down their creatures pretty easily. And most of their protection doesn't work super great against Claim the Firstborn. Doesn't matter if your creature's indestructible, if it gets stolen and sacrificed. We have various Jeskai creativity combo lists, some that play Sarah's Emissary, some that play Locust God, Sage of the Falls combo. We have blue-white auras, we have black-white auras, we have Selesnia Enchantress that plays Nine Lives combo. We have all sorts of new versions of Celesnia's Enchantress playing the new green-white cost reducer that switch more into sort of an aggro game plan.
0: Those are all Sithis decks, right?
1: Uh, There are like a billion different ways you can build those decks. And there's a lot of potential there, I think, with um, the new runes package potentially and trying to go away from being the more controlling lockout version to be something more aggressive. Uh, Beyond that, we have Goblins still exists and can still play the card Muxus because that was a card that was printed for some reason. We have Gruul Aggro that plays Embercleave. We have now a Gruul Combo deck that plays Shamans and tries to double all the Shamans' triggers. Because Burning Tree Emissary is a Shaman. And if you play a doubled Burning Tree Emissary, you just get four mana off of your two-mana creature. And then you get to play like Elvish Visionary to draw two cards. Or the three-mana Pyromancer that loots, makes tokens, and draws two is also a shaman so you just make like four one ones if you play it.
0: Uh, Harmonic Prodigy is such a busted magic card. Goblin
1: Ruin Blaster is a shaman so if you copy it you blow up two lands. I've been on the wrong side of far too many times.
0: I can imagine especially playing five color Niv that's just such a shot to the heart. You don't get to recover from that. Blue White Affinity
1: got a ton of new toys in the new set. Moonsnare Prototype that gets to tap a
0: bunch of stuff and also can just be
1: a Aethergust later on.
0: If I were going to jump into Historic right now, I think I would be wanting to mess around with that deck and the card that draws more cards, whatever that one's called.
1: There's the new Dig Through Time that just costs two mana in that deck. That deck sounds like so much fun. It's kind of in the fun position where we got so many cool new toys for blue-white artifacts that now it's like an 80-card deck, and which of the new toys do we cut to make room for the other new toys? (laughs) Sounds like time for Yarian to me. That's always the convenient answer. There's actually a lot of the stuff in that deck that has powerful ETBs to blink, too. Some of the living weapon stuff is actually kind of nice to blink. Your two-mana creature that whenever it ETBs goes and finds an artifact off the top of the deck sounds sweet to me Uh, let's see we also have mono red madness which is half burn deck half card advantage engine because everything in it is a discard outlet and everything in it comes back from the graveyard simic merfolk actually exists again i don't entirely know how to feel about that as someone who hates playing against control spells from aggro
0: decks and that deck has some strong cards does that three drop lord that seems pretty powerful
1: three mana three four that's mostly indestructible and draws cards whenever it attacks and lets them accidentally just turn into a mid-range list half the time it happens to be four toughness so it's like invincible to all removal spells yeah seems pretty good (laughs) mono black aggro was really popular for a while because blue white and Jeskai removal spells just didn't interact with their creatures at all. Selesnya Human still exists. That's mostly mono-white, splashing for village protector or something. There's a three-mana creature with ward infinity that gets plus one plus one counters for every human you control when it enters the battlefield. It just, like, is impossible for control to kill. We have mono-green decks playing Seek to the Wilds, which is... Supposed to be a ramp spell, but is actually more like a tutor spell. I love that card. What are they grabbing with it? Pretty much every spot on the curve. The big noticeable ones are that they have Ugin at 8 mana to clean up different aggro lists pretty rapidly. Ulamog at 10 to win games against control decks. At 6 mana, there is usually a split between a couple of different creatures, but the most common one I've seen is actually Kogla basically be a super removal spell that fights off an aggro threat and then punches down uh, Key to the Archives against Control X when it attacks. I don't remember what they usually have on 7. I think I've seen some weird deviations up to and including, I think it was Platinum Angel. Because it's a basically a tutor package, it, the scary thing is every green ramp deck player is putting different random cards that are their own favorite little silver
0: bullet in these different spots, so you never know what to expect or what you have to be playing against. That sounds kind of sweet. As an ex-mono green mage for whom Settler Wilds was my favorite card from that Alchemy release, I'll have to check those out. That sounds really sweet. And then the last
1: one I had on this list from like a month ago was Elves, which does the Elves things. (laughs) Plays lots of Elves and then a Crater huff, and you die.
0: That was a sweet and exhaustive list. For sure, I appreciate that. It seems like kind of a wide open field. It is distressingly wide when you're trying to encapsulate it all. Which hopefully will lead to a good championship. Modern seems the same way at the moment. There's plenty of really powerful things and we definitely know what some of the kind of best decks in the format are right now but it by no means feels solved every week someone can come up with some sweet new tech that can maybe push them ahead yeah it is a very very broad format which is uh, plenty of room to just jam hinata and see what happens right it doesn't matter what your opponent's doing if all of your stuff costs nothing and theirs costs a bunch what are some of the cool things that we're putting around hinata in historic because i imagine you're still playing a lot of these standard or alchemy cards the initial explorations i did with hinata mostly saying I need to prove
1: to myself Hinata doesn't work in Historic so that I can actually focus on good decks. I started with literally just playing the alchemy Hinata list in Historic. It worked and won, and I did the thing where I played Hinata and then realized slowly, oh wow, Hinata taxes this spell. Oh wow, Hinata taxes this spell. Wait, oh no, I wanted to prove
0: to myself this was a bad idea. And it's working! Going down the list on expressive Iteration, yeah, that's a Historic card. Magma Opus, seen a lot of play in Historic. You know, the more I think about it, it seems like it would be just fine.
1: The biggest difference is that you get to play Mizzix's Mastery, which just gives you more backdoor ways to turn Magmopus into a stellar card. You can cast that for three, right? That's pretty sweet. Which means that you also just have more ways to use the Magmopus's that you already cast for two off of Hinata. A lot of the times you can kind of stabilize, but still lose after casting a cheap Magmopus. Much harder when you're casting more. It also turns out that there's a lot of times where you just cast an eight mana uh Mysticous Mastery and
0: win. That card still wins games, man. <laughs> I guess I'll just play three magma opuses at my opponent's face, that'll finish a game, why not? That's really cool, I'm glad to hear that. I was telling CGB on the show last week, You know, I was looking at at Hinata and I was like, this looks like a historic card to me. The Hinata opus combo looks like a historic power level of combo to me.
1: It's so easy to look at Hinata and feel like kind of a meme. You're not gonna get Hinata and play and then get your other card often enough for the combo to be good. The more you play with it, the more you realize, oh, oh, I, I don't actually need a combo.
0: Hinata's just big. Big is good. Big creature good. I imagine once you get it down versus control, it must be so distressing. Taxes all of your opponent's spells that would deal with it. Taxes your opponent's counter spells. Threatens planeswalkers. Especially if your
1: opponent wants to hold up removal for it and needs to leave up three mana to fatefully absent it instead of two because it's going to tax it. So they can't just sit there holding up their negate in their fateful absence with two mana while they developed their board on their turn. Otherwise, they're just going to get hosed. It's delightful. Is
0: Shark Typhoon an annoying problem for Hinata to deal with? If your opponent leaves
1: up six mana for Shark Typhoon, you can kind of just not swing into it. Hinata, in a way, actually is a card that's very good against Shark Typhoon because it gives you a reasonable way to not just die to a 2-2 Shark, which is the mode on Shark Typhoon that... In control mirrors actually ends up most often deciding a game. You cycle a shark typhoon on turn four and your opponent has to eventually go out of their way to deal with it or maybe it just kills them. But Hinata
0: is very cheap. It invalidates shocks that they haven't really committed a lot of mana to.
1: And if they decide to go all in on spending six mana to make a four four shark to counteract your Hinata when all of your spells cost less, They're giving you a big opening to do a lot of powerful things at instant speed.
0: If you can just tap down a shock with a two mana Magma Opus, that's got to feel like a good exchange for you as well. Yeah. That sounds fantastic to me. In my mind, it would feel so satisfying to go into Historic, especially since playing Jeskai, yeah, now you have access to all of those goodies like Lightning Helix and all that other stuff. I could see it being really amazing, that you end up taking it all away and getting good results.
1: I will be very excited if I manage to get to play Hinata in every format. That's the goal at the moment.
0: All right, Chris, I could talk about this all night, but we got to end somewhere, so let's call that a show. Before we get out of there, where can people find you on the interwebs? So I can be found at twitter.com as
1: cbotellomagic, on Twitch as Chris Botello, and on YouTube if you want to watch some of the older VODs they are a little edited down for time as Chris Botello as well.
0: I highly recommend Chris's stream. I find you to be a very entertaining streamer, but also just learn a lot because you talk very comprehensively through your lines. If you want to actually see Chris's improvement process in action that we were talking about earlier, just go watch the stream. You'll get to see as much of it as you have stomach for, basically. Yeah, I guarantee you'll get to watch me make a lot of mistakes and hopefully learn from some of them. And play a lot of really fun decks in the meantime, which is sweet. Thanks so much for being on the show, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thanks. And uh, just to go out here, you can find Arena Craft. Uh, we're on Spotify. We're on Covert Go Blues YouTube channel, you can watch the video version of this if you want, you can see that thousand mile stare in person. We also have a Discord where you can hang out and chat about decks. it's a great place to be, and we have a Patreon. And that helps to support this show, helps us to keep the lights on, helps to keep us motivated, helps to pay our editors. So we really really appreciate all of our patrons, 100%. Uh, That's going to do it for this episode, and we will catch you next time, crafties.